The Nightmare Life continued to deteriorate in the ghetto throughout 1941 and the beginning of 1942. Then my father stopped making wine and my mother stopped baking challabans. I don't know how they made a living after that, but the change in our situation took an enormous toll on both my parents. My father's appearance didn't change that much. He still had his little scraggly beard, but he was weakening inside. Amazingly, though, he never lost his faith. And not only did he not lose his faith, but he remained deeply religious, even at the most desperate of times. My mother, however, changed dramatically. I think it was very hard for her to accept that she had gone from being an the educated lady of the house, to where she was now. When we were in the ghetto, I don't remember even seeing her smile. In my mind, I always see her as she was before the war, when we walked in the streets of Wuj, when she had beautiful hair that she incorporated into her scheitel, when she wore fashionable hats and was always elegantly dressed. She was only in her thirties when we were in the ghetto, but her beautiful blonde hair went a kind of dirty gray and she cut it short. She wanted to cut off my sister's hair too because of the lack of sanitary conditions, but my sister wouldn't let her. My mother became preoccupied and tense. Her parents and all her siblings were in the lodge ghetto, and she never heard from them and didn't know whether they were alive or dead. So one can imagine the trauma she was living with. She spent a lot of time in the toilet, but I don't think she always went there because she needed to. I think she simply needed a few minutes to herself. The place was small and noisy, and she wanted to be alone. She was worn down and showing great pain. I feel that she may have been unwell and suffering from some illness in the ghetto, particularly towards the end of 1941. I think that my mother suffered the most from not knowing how to save her children. She was desperately trying to keep our family together and look after us. I was ill several times, not seriously ill, but I had weak lungs and got sick and had fever for a long time. My parents made sacrifices and bought medication for me. They even tried to force me to eat horse meat soup on the advice of a doctor, and they somehow pushed it down my throat, even though I screamed and refused to eat it because it wasn't kosher. Even though I didn't like studying or praying except on my own terms, I was strongly committed to my faith. On July 22, 1942, placards appeared on the walls in the ghetto announcing the deportation of the Jews. I was 10 years old by then, and that was when I started to feel a real sense of hopelessness. It was as if there was an abyss in front of me. I wanted to be pulled back from it, and to this day, I feel there is a hand pulling me back into that abyss whenever I get depressed. Even though I live in a civilized world now, and hopefully I will die in a civilized manner, 
there is still that chaotic cosmos in the back of my subconscious that comes out in all kinds of shapes in my nightmares. The feeling of there being a pit in front of me has never left me, and I have to be on my guard against the unknown. I rarely allow myself the luxury of complete happiness. Even at the happiest moments of my life, I have a tortured soul, and that is my legacy from the Holocaust. Soon after the placards appeared, there was an announcement that in order to stay in the ghetto, you needed to have documents stating you could work. I think my father got his documents first through Rav Rabig Avram Kroll, who was a cousin of ours by marriage. He was an astute, brilliant man who knew how to organize matters and take care of himself. Rav Kroll had a high position in one of the clothing factories in the ghetto and was on good terms with one of the German managers. Rav Kroll often helped my parents by getting food, and I think that he even helped my father get raisins when he was still making wine. When he came to visit us, he would always bring items with him or he would be arranging something for us, and my father would hand over some jewelry in return. Kroll was a brave man who fought in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising and was also in Warsaw during the city uprising in 1944. During the city uprising, he fell four stories from a building and broke his arms and his legs. How he survived, God only knows. When the Soviets arrived in Warsaw, they took him to a hospital where his bones were reset, but one of his legs withered and he walked with a limp. The last time I saw Ralph Kroll in the ghetto was after the second deportation, when he came to our apartment to talk to my father. He told my father that it didn't matter what documents he brought us, the Germans had no intentions of leaving anyone alive in the Warsaw Ghetto. He was sending his wife and children to the Aryan side because they were blonde and blue-eyed, and he wanted my mother and my sister to go to the Aryan side too. But my mother refused and said she wasn't going anywhere without her husband and son. That I remember very clearly. Even though the placard suggested that those living on the street and those who were sick and didn't have food were going to be sent to a better place where they would be taken care of and fed, my father didn't believe it. He did not trust the Nazis at all. He understood that they were not going to send us to be taken care of. He understood that the Germans played games. They issued a number of different identification cards to those people who were to remain in the ghetto. Then they would have inspection to check those cards. And suddenly they would invalidate the original cards and issue new ones. They played this game time and time again as they continued to deport people on a regular basis. Soon enough, people learned that the once deported were being sent to Treblinka to be gassed to death in the showers. Within six weeks of the first deportations, everyone was talking about it. Those who were taken to the Umschlagplatz, the deportation square, were going to Treblinka to be murdered. 
Very few people were able to escape Treblinka. I knew of one who did by smuggling himself out by hiding in a wagon full of the clothing of murdered Jews. He came back and told us about the gas that came out of the spouts instead of water in the showers and the bodies that were being burned in open ditches. The smoke of the dead bodies permeated the whole area. Even the farmers living in the area knew that the Nazis were murdering the Jews and burning their bodies. Before the deportations, I was a little blonde, blue-eyed boy without an armband to whom nobody paid any attention on the streets. Once the deportation started, I wasn't allowed to run outside anymore. I was confined to the apartment where I began to feel like a caged animal. Once the deportation began, our parents hid Sabina and me instead of taking us out to show our documents. For some reason, we had a steel door on our apartment, and my father managed to put padlocks and a crossbeam across the door on the outside to make it seem as if the apartment was locked up and empty. My parents hid us under the beds when the Nazis came with rifles knocking and trying to get in. Eventually, they would give up, especially in the beginning where there were still lots of people to catch. Later on, as fewer people were left in the ghetto, the Germans had three big Aktionen, roundups, to weed out those who were hiding. They always chose Jewish holidays to close off all the streets and force everyone to come down to show their documents. We called those blockades kochul in Polish, which means, interestingly, both boiler and encirclement. It was then that our parents began hiding us in the attic of our building. The caretaker, a Jewish man, appointed to that role by the Judenrat, helped to build a false wall in the attic under the sloping roof, where about 30 people could hide. When we were all inside, he shoved a big chest in front of it that had compartments in it to hold tools and oils. The Germans would come and look around and then leave when they couldn't find anyone. On one occasion, a small child cried out in the attic, and a lot of people wanted to smother that child. That is a very, very painful memory. After each action, there was a lull for a few weeks, and we could go back to our apartment until the next one. One particular action stands out because this was on Yom Kippur, and all the men were hiding in the attic, praying. I don't know where my mother and sister were. The men were praying for deliverance, and my father put his talus over his head and mine, and he was crying. He stood like that for a while, with his head and mine under his talus. And the emotion of that is rooted so strongly in my being that today, when I pray on Yom Kippur, that's where I am, standing in the attic in the Warsaw Ghetto. At one point, I had gunshots and got out from under the talus and went over to the outside wall to look at the street through the slits in the wood slats. I saw the Germans had closed off the street, and I could see the Ukrainian and German SS hurrying people along Gulitsa Mila and shooting at them, 
and the Jewish police stocking all the dead bodies up like logs of wood. There was machine gun fire going off for a long time. I can still hear it ringing in my ears. There were times where I couldn't believe that what I was seeing was real. This was one of those times I felt I was looking into a surreal world. We existed that way by hiding until 19th of April, 1943. Erev Pesach, the eve of Passover, which was also the eve of the uprising of the Warsaw Ghetto. That day, there was an alarm. The few telephones that existed in the ghetto were still somehow working. These were mostly in apartments where doctors or other people deemed important lived, and the Polish underground resistant on the outside, who were working with the Jewish underground, phoned someone in the ghetto to say that the Nazis were coming in to take everybody out. By that time, there were already lots of bunkers in the ghetto. We also prepared a bunker underneath the ruins at the front of our building. The caretaker and the men in our building, including my father, had dug it out, creating a middle section as an entrance and a room on either side. They didn't want to give up and be taken by the Germans. So they put in food, electricity, and water, and air vents so the bunker couldn't be discerned from the outside. My father and mother prepared us children for when we would have to go there. They told us that when the time came to go into the bunker, we were to ask no questions and we must get ready as quickly as we could. That day, we all went down to the bunker about 150 people in all. Something very touching that happened that day, and it had become part of my connection to my mother. It was early in the morning, about five o'clock or so, when our parents woke us up. My mother was holding velnanie rajstopi, wooden tights, which children wore in Poland in the winter, and she put two pairs of these tights on each of us. God forbid she must have been thinking that her children should catch cold. My father must have brought wine, somebody else had matzos, and that evening in the bunker they made a seder. Everyone was crying and praying. These were religious Jews who knew by heart the Haggadah, the Jewish text that sets forth the order of the Passover seder. And it still amazes me that at such a dire time, they never forgot their culture and their morals. They also made sure to shelter and look after their children. I took my book, Gone with the Wind, which I had been reading for a while, with me to the bunker, and I read it front to back many times. There must have been light in the bunker as well as a trapdoor that could be opened so we could go out for some fresh air, but only at night, when the Nazis usually didn't operate. Even so, we had to be careful when we went out, because there were informers who would come at night, mix with people, and beg them to be let into their bunkers. That's how they found out where the bunkers were, and the next day they would go and tell the Germans 
would come with flamethrowers and artillery and announce that if the people didn't come out in a half an hour, they would burn the bunker down. Eventually, the Germans leveled the whole ghetto that way. We were in the bunker for about three weeks. And for the last few days, we stayed inside and didn't venture out. People spoke only in hushed tones, which had a hint of hysteria in them. Then the first week in May, the inevitable knock came on the trapdoor, and we heard voices through the air vents. We had been found out. The voices, I can't recall if it in German or Polish, said that if we didn't come out within half an hour, they were going to throw gas bombs into the bunker and we would all die. When we emerged, we saw Germans squatting with machine guns and they set the building on fire anyway. One image has stayed clearly in my mind. As we left the bunker, we saw German paratroopers dressed all in black like the devil himself, with black helmets and machine guns strapped across their chests. They kept shouting, Hände hoch! Hände hoch! Nicht schießen! Nicht schießen! Hands up! Hands up! Don't shoot! They thought that we had guns, and they were afraid of us. I felt very proud. We were all searched and then forced to lie down next to the building where the Ukrainian guarded us. Now the collaborators were either Ukrainians, Latvians, or Lithuanians. We stayed that way for a long time while they gathered up a large column of people. By the time we started walking, it was dark, and we were surrounded by burning buildings. People were trying to escape, running away from the column, and one man ran toward the flames of a burning building as one of the guards aimed his rifle and shot after him. The guard was laughing himself silly as he shot, not even seeming to care whether he hit the man or not, since it really didn't matter whether the man died of a bullet or in the flames. That image became our first recurring nightmare. For the years, I would dream that I was being shot in the back and I was dying as I ran into the flames. I seldom have this nightmare now, thank God. There were other nightmares later on. After 1955, when a different part of my brain kicked in and my real problems began, but that one was one of the worst. The Ukrainian guards walked us to the Umschlagplatz, the roundup square for deportation. Then they forced us up some steps of a building into a room on the second or third floor of what had been an old Jewish hospital or Jewish school. That was the waiting station, the anteroom to hell. The room was small, and they pushed as many people as possible into it, so there was only space to squat. We all stayed that way the whole of the first night. It was a nightmare. People were in a panic mode, and the children were screaming and yelling all night while the Ukrainians pulled young girls out to rape. No one was allowed out. There was no food, and the Ukrainians would give someone water only if he or she had gold or other valuables to buy it with. My father took my mother's gold wedding ring off her finger. I suppose that was all they had left by then and bought some water. He had a sock with some sugar and a teaspoon in it, 
which he must have saved from the bunker, and my sister and I were given a teaspoon of sugar and a bit of water now and then. My parents didn't touch it, saving it for us. Then we were chased out of that building as we were running down the stairs all the way to a train of cattle wagons. There were guards, Ukrainians and Germans, lined up every second stair and standing all along the way with their barking dogs. They beat us with rifle butts, clubs, wooden planks and sticks. Once we got to the trains, they pushed as many people as possible into the wagons. But somehow, my father maneuvered us into a spot where we had some air. As he had always been, he was our guardian angel, his wings protecting his family. He was not a physically strong man, and he was a broken man by this time. But he obviously had a great deal of spiritual and moral resilience, because he did everything in his power to save his family. The fact that he had kept us so safe for such a long time is quite remarkable.